0: This is a Trapital combined with the University of Michigan webinar we're hosting on the best hip-hop marketing campaigns of all time. I think most of you that signed up know who I am. I'm Dan Runcie, the founder of Trapital, but I'm joined by an esteemed guest, a friend, a brother, Mr. Marcus Collins. How's it going, man?
1: I'm doing really well. Thanks
0: for having me. I am stoked for this conversation. It'll this be good. No, thank you. I'm sure everyone that signed up saw your intro, but I had wanted to have this type of conversation for a while. And I know you and I have been talking for a while and I think it just be for the audience to know, even before we get started, you really were one of the first people that had not just put me on necessarily, but it kind of opened eyes like, yes, these are the type of things that are happening. And I'm one of the people behind the scenes that is making these hip hop marketing campaigns work. This is how we do it. I'm thinking back to years ago when you would come in, visit us at University of Michigan, break things down. I like saw the vision of you becoming a professor at that point and now you're a professor at that same school. So it's dope to see that all full circle.
1: Yeah, I've been very, very fortunate to be in places where I was able to understand or actually to see firsthand how powerful culture can be as a vehicle for consumption and hip hop culture being such a prevalent salient cultural ethos that arguably is popular culture, American culture at the very least see those things kind of come together and in some cases being able to
0: touch it so I, I consider myself extremely fortunate awesome so for timing and for folks know we're going to start off marcus and i are both going to break down the top five hip-hop marketing campaigns of all time we both made our own list and we ran through our list together we went through it in very different ways which i think is dope you'll get a good idea for how we both went about this After that, we're gonna spend a little bit of time talking about Marcus's favorite campaigns because he is a former advertising and award-winning advertising exec that has worked on several campaigns himself. After that, we're going to talk briefly about the marketing campaign that's gotten all the buzz the past week or so, which is Travis Scott's deal with McDonald's. And then at that point, we should have about 15 minutes left at the end for Q&A. So feel free to post questions as they come in the chat. And when they come, you can be unmuted and then you can chat with us and then we can have a little back and forth. So questions as they come, post them there. So Marcus, I'll let you start first. Before we go into the top five, do you have any honorable mentions? Anything that didn't quite make the list for your top five, but you wanted to throw in there still and make sure it got mentioned? You know,
1: it was a challenge for me is I had to think to myself, what made this a hip hop campaign? Was it because the campaign leveraged the culture of hip hop? Was it because they leveraged rap music, which sort of is the mythology of hip hop? So it was such a wide range that those things could have fallen in that I kept it very close. No honorable mentions. No, you were just so close.
0: It is no finalists. It's the top five and that's it. I respect that. You are much more diligent than I am. I had a few that I was like, oh, man, I want to acknowledge this, but it didn't quite make the list. And I do think similarly, it makes sense to at least have a bit of grounding and explain where you kind of went from with yours. I like where you went from yours mentioning the philosophy. With me, I looked a lot about impact and things that were successful in a way that was unconventional. And I think people will see that ring through with mine. But two quickly to mention that I had as honorable mentions. One was Kanye West's Good Friday campaigns that he had before his 2010 album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Then he had it again in advance of The Life of Pablo. These were singles that he put out every week leading up to these albums. I believe it was at least a two or three month campaign for My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. He did it again with T-Lop and of course, you've seen this before. It's a way for him to get interest, generate a bit of branding as well, because good music itself was just coming a bit more into power at that particular moment. So I think at that moment, it did a lot, not just for those albums, but for the broader good music brand. So,
1: And a lot after, of those records on Good Friday actually went on the album of My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Like Christian Dior didn't make it, but a lot of them other ones did.
0: It was his version of putting out the mixtape, right? He could have done... That, but it was like, no, let me just go one by one, week by week. That's right. It was brilliant. And then the other honorable mention that I had was LL Cool J back in the 90s. He had done this famous Gap commercial that we've all seen, but he did it wearing a FUBU hat. <laughs> and then name drop Google in the rhyme. It's one of those things that I don't think would fly today because there's too many people that would be noticing to be like, did you see what he just said? Did you see what he just did there there? But no, I felt like that was pretty smart. Yeah, he crushed it. All right. What's your number five? Okay. So the rubric for me
1: was it had to embody the ethos of hip hop, right? The cultural drivers of hip hop and had to have cultural impact. That is, it couldn't only just borrow from the culture, it had to contribute to the culture. So number five for me was hamburger helper mixtape. Watch the stove. You're familiar with this, right? So this is 2016, April Fool's Day. They drop a mixtape and the mixtape is fire like it's a for real mixtape and it goes ham and i think the the agency used artists from minneapolis i think like some local artists from minneapolis leveraging watch the throne as watch the stove and if you listen to the lyrics like they're straight up giving value propositions of the product like how you mix the product it's crazy unreal had 2 million downloads in the first 18 hours and more importantly that they debuted the mixtape on Daft Piff. Like they understood the cultural nuances. Just brilliant. Just killed it. You
0: were the first person that put me on to that mixtape. Ah, uh, this world. I wish I did that work. So good. <laughs> it was smooth. And it was something that I honestly wasn't expecting from Hamburger Helper. But I think that's what we started to see. No, it's not just going to be the brands that seem obvious. More and more of these companies are going to come out and say, this is our way to understand things. And yeah, the Dapif thing was brilliant considering what we expected from a brand like that. If you look back at their newsfeed or social content before
1: the mixtape, they had always been talking about hip-hop. So the culture was always kind of a part of at least their tonality. So them doing a mixtape didn't feel like they were appropriating the culture, but
0: contributing to it. This just brilliant. Dope. That's awesome. All right, you're number five. What you got? My number five is Nipsey Hussle's $100 mixtape in 2013. Yep, yep, yep. So Nipsey Hussle, of course, had been a unsigned artist doing his thing for a while. But he had this idea to put his mixtape out, but not just put it out on Dat Piff the way he had done with past mixtapes for free. He wanted to start this proud to pay campaign. And the idea came from this book that he read called Contagious. I believe it's by Jonah Berger is the author. And I read the book, actually, because of Nipsey talking about it. In the second chapter of this book, he's telling the story about this restaurant in Philadelphia. Of course, Philadelphia, home to the Philly cheesesteak. This restaurant sells this Philly cheesesteak for a $100. And of course, that's essentially a fast food item. And it got ridicule from everyone about the pricing. However, when you put something out there in the market with a price like that, it attracts tons of attention. So within weeks, folks like David Letterman, folks like Oprah were going to visit this restaurant to see what it was all about. And it helped the restaurant's success even further. And since then, the restaurant has since increased the price of the Philly cheesesteak to $120. And Nipsey saw that and was like, okay, I see what's happening there let's apply this to rap. He applied it to rap and he was able to have similar success to the Philly cheesesteak. He had a thousand of these mixtapes, sold them out within 24 hours. I mean, you could do the math there. He did quite well for himself. And Jay-Z and others had bought a bunch just to show that they were proud to pay. And it really highlighted the segmentation of fandom that I think can be overlooked when people are trying to put a product out there. You have people that will, of course, buy or listen to your music for free, but there's always going to be the super fans, the people that want to support you. And if you give them the opportunity to do so, They will do that. They will want to feel like they are down for the ride. And I think that a lot of these things sound pretty commonplace now. But back in 2013, you really didn't hear people in hip hop talking about it like that. Nipsey got ridiculed. But after he did this, he started to get the big name features in Forbes and other places. Because of this, it worked as well as he thought of it, maybe even better. And of course, two years later, he ran it back with the $1,000 mixtape, similar strategy.
1: What I love about that, him borrowing from the behavioral science as Berger calls out, that he leveraged this idea that these unbelievable things that happen, like the $100 cheesesteak, is that people talk about them, good or bad, to talk about them, right? We talk about things, we're more inclined to share things that evoke emotion that are, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. You gotta see this. And this is exactly what happened. Just brilliant, brilliant. What's your four? All right. Number four for me was Reebok and the S. Carters. So Reebok struggling at the time realizes that people aren't buying sneakers just for performance. They're buying it for fashion, right? It's either casual sneakers and trying to understand how they might do that. They partner with Stout and Translation. I wasn't there at the time, but partner with Stout and Translation. And the idea was let's create a sneaker that was for the fashion. And we're going to totally divorce this from any athleticism. So they got like the most non-athletic person you can think about in hip hop, Jay-Z. He don't run nowhere. He don't jump nowhere. He's totally like all about style. I think they borrowed the silhouette from the Dapper Dan Gucci loafer and used that to inform the product. And not only did they release this new sneaker, first time a non-athlete had a sneaker deal, but he released it using a mixtape which is like so 2003, which is the time it was launched. The S.Doc Carters launched first, then you had the G-Unit apparel launch afterwards. The whole promotion was done like an album release. It just real, just
0: killed it, just crushed it. I remember the commercial that 50 and Jay-Z had done at that time with Reebok, and that was the peak of Reebok in terms of hip hop. It was the whole RBK movement. As you mentioned, Steve Stout had worked on this. This was before you were there. But in a lot of ways, this was one of the big campaigns for him that he was already like a known name of the entity, but that was one of the first like, translation is here and we're doing this. That's right. True. And that actually lines up pretty well because my number four is also a Reebok campaign from that same time frame. It was the Alan Iverson campaign and the commercials that he had done with Jadakiss. I believe it was the Answer 5 or the Answer 6. I forget the specific it was the speaker. Okay, yeah. So the AI 5s, they have it, and then you have Jadakiss doing his rap, but then AI comes in as well after. And of course, AI had released mixtapes and albums like that in the past, but we were able to see him come out there and really lean into this branding that he had done for himself. I think that a lot of people remember the NBA back then. It was a very different aspect in terms of how stars were celebrated. AI just was someone that the league tried to chew away and they didn't want to see anyone being too gangster or seeing anyone doing too this and this. But not only was he unapologetic of who he was, he inspired other people to do the same. You still hear other stars go about it. And I think it speaks a bit broadly to two things. One, just how marketable someone like him was and how hip hop was able to help push into that. I remember, like, they had this running joke with there were two jerseys that went platinum in the hood at the time. You had the Michael Vick Atlanta Falcons jersey and you had the Allen Iverson Sixers jersey but it wasn't even those like Reebok was selling Allen Iverson football jerseys I don't know if you remember those black ones that they had it looked like the Raiders jerseys and the fact that they weren't scared the way that I think the NBA and the league was at the time to just be like no this is hip-hop he is an extension of our culture and we're going to have him collaborating in this type of way it was dope his gameplay play was basically like and one
1: on the basketball court on an His apparel, corn rolls, tatted up, iced out. Like he was, like you said, he was the perfect embodiment of everything that was hip hop at what that time was a very conservative league. And I love how this is your number four too, because that was actually the second step after the S. Carter. So first you have Jay-Z introduce Reebok as a casual apparel, as a fashion brand. And then you bring AI, the most hip hop basketball player there is, to bring performance back into it, but pair Jada Kiss, another person who isn't terribly athletic.
0: It was just really well done, very well orchestrated. I saw a few other fun facts when I was just looking it up again. So in 10 years time, Alan Iverson will be able to get a trust that he has from his Reebok deal for, let me see what the number is. Is it like 32 million or something like that? Yeah, a $32 million trust fund in 10 years when he's 55. That was really well done. Uh, Part of me wishes, I still wish I saw the question and the answers in the culture and in the sneaker drop culture the same way that you see the Jordan line. Who knows, maybe we'll get it someday. I'm with you. What's your next one?
1: Number three is near and dear to my heart because I worked on this one. It is the Budweiser Made in America Music Festival. Mm. So this is one of the first things that I worked on at Translation. And this was how do we leverage music as a vehicle to make Budweiser relevant in popular culture? Understanding that Budweiser is this Americana brand. The Americana I thought about is like, you know, flag waving, patriotic, I'm proud to be an American, the troops come home, Americana. But the Americana that we lived in, at least in that time in 2012, was like, you know, the new Americana. Right? We smoke marijuana. Like, that's the world that Budweiser was operating in. And how might Budweiser tap into this new American lexicon? And the idea was that people celebrate America because it's supposed to be a place where you can start from nothing and get to something. People can create things, put things in the world and have the American dream. So the idea was like, well, let's create a music festival that celebrates people who make the creators that are living out their creed to pursue the American dream partner with Jay-Z, who is the perfect manifestation of that. And uh, launched a festival in 2012 in the Benjamin Franklin, Parkway in Philadelphia, the most American city there is, 90,000 people over a weekend. And the festival would have been in this, what, ninth iteration this summer if it weren't for COVID. And it has been counted among the Bonaroos, the Lollapaloozas, the Coachellas of the world. Like, it's making an impact on culture
0: in a real meaningful way. I was going to talk about this one later, but I'll talk about it now. This was my favorite campaign of the ones that you were involved in. And I think that the biggest reason why is because, as you mentioned, Budweiser just wasn't a brand that was synonymous with this. If anything, it was Bud Light that was always the one that was seen more trendy, a bit more edgy with the funny Super Bowl commercials, right? But Budweiser was always the Clydesdales and these like, you know, Murica, like driving a Ford F-150 through Idaho or something, right? Yeah. I mean, it was dope to just see someone like, Future singing March Madness at a festival like this, and you could just see how thoughtful everything was—from the location of it to how it was branded. I think that was
1: dope. And what was really cool on the first, the end of the first night during Jay Z set, he got a video from Barack Obama, who was like, "Yo, you know, this is us. This is what America's all about." Like he's the president, like a president, like co-signing your campaign that doesn't happen very often I thought was super 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 cool then ron howard shot the documentary for it
0: that debuted on showtime which is great as you mentioned the obama connection it was one of those events that i feel really did signify the obama era of things that we just saw in culture like i don't think that you see a musical like hamilton in a different administration, right? I don't think you even see an album like Watch the Throne come out. There's like a, we made it, that hip hop was able to say and express in art and Made in America was definitely one of those. Absolutely. All right, give us your number three, what you got? So my number three is one of the most famous head-to-head battles for two artists competing for the number one spot on the charts. This is 50 Cent versus Kanye West going head-to-head in 2007. As many people know, 2007 was a bit of a turning point for hip-hop. It was the last years that G-Unit was really relevant, but Kanye West was really becoming stadium yay. The albums dropped on September 11th of that year, but months before, they both heard each other's albums. They got a sense for where they were at, and it was 50 that had the release date set first, but then Kanye was like, hey, I'm going to move my date up, and let's make this a competition. And you know how they both are, like they just hyped it up to anything. Hip hop has never seen anything like this. They were on all of these shows talking about it. And it went to another level when 50, of course, put the ultimatum out there, which didn't come through, but he put the ultimatum out there to say, if Kanye sells more than me, I will retire. Exactly, yeah. With that, they both go head to head. And of course, Graduation won. It almost sold a million albums that first week. And I think Curtis sold just under 700,000. This is domestically within the US. And it signified a few things. One, this was really one of the last years that album sales were one of the key ways that the industry was celebrating what was happening in hip hop. I feel like the Carter three, which was a year later was really the last time I felt like a big album that had came out, at least from hip hop, really like stayed strong in that type of way. But it was also, as I mentioned earlier, a turning point for hip hop. We were moving away from a lot of the America's favorite gangster persona that 50 Cent had thrived that he had carried on from DMX, that DMX had carried on from Tupac and just how that was so strong in the nineties and. Kanye really coming a bit more into his own as the backpack rapper that then becomes the A-lister and how we just saw people like your Kid Cudi's, your Lupe Fiasco's and Drake and all these other artists that followed in his, you know, same influence. So I think it's also
1: pretty interesting there is that, so this is 2007 at the time, the medium by which we were consuming music or hearing about music was still MySpace and Facebook. There was no Twitter or Instagram. So those things didn't exist at all. And what was really fueling the feud was like TRL and 106 in part. Like they would get on like, yo, we're going to get, I'm going for your jugular 50. Like, I don't want to fight you for real, but I'm going to fight you with this. Like, it's interesting how we all were sort of around the campfire paying attention to these stories in ways that we don't do now. Today, we actually will be the ones sort of giving iterations on what those stories might become that wasn't happening at the time, which I think it, it says a lot about the era and music by the way we were consuming, but also by way we were participating in it, which I think is really powerful. All right. What's your next one? Number two. So this is one of the campaigns that I wish, I wish, I wish I would have done. So- it's Beats by Dre, straight out of Compton. You know, what was done here is just unbelievable. So, obviously, Dr. Dre, one of the co founders, owners of the time of Beats by Dre, his biopic, Straight Out of, is being released. So, how do you put those together? Pulling from what we know of the ethos of Straight Out of is that we're all straight out of somewhere. So, with that in mind, it becomes this sort of democratized platform for people to participate in this launch. So the guy speaks by Dre, Jason White, really, really good dude. So they orchestrate this like, hey, there's an event happening in Hollywood or something like that. And he's like, hey, we're going to get this really, really famous photographer take your picture for free. People are like, oh, I know that photographer. I'll come in and take a All these celebrities come in and take a picture. So he has all of these people taking a photo and he creates this straight out of meme using where they're from. And then, puts the code up so that anybody can tell where they're straight out of. And it becomes this massively powerful storytelling mechanism with so many derivative works and that everyone was saying where they're straight out of. And I think it was 2015, it was the first time that the same trending topic on Facebook,
0: Instagram, and Twitter was the exact same thing. It's never happened before, especially in marketing. It's just unreal. I think that was one of the best launches and campaigns that was associated with a movie in a while it was interactive it was memorable and I felt like everyone had it on their Instagram everyone was repping wherever they're from and even walking around San Francisco I still see people with the t-shirts that say straight out of San Francisco I still see it at least once a month it was strong it was dope I think a lot of things from that movie and the way that it was marketed was brilliant and yeah I could definitely see you having been involved with something like that. It was just really smart. I wish I would have done that. What I loved about it is that it wasn't just Hip hop culture
1: started to resonate into the popular zeitgeist. For instance, when the White House did the sanctions on Iran, they said Iran's going to be straight out of uranium. Like, it's like using the meme, which we know hip hop to become. It becomes the lexicon of how this country engages in the popular zeitgeist. Hip hop is American culture. And to see a campaign for a movie about something that was. Back in the 80s that were shunned and thought of like, oh, this is so not like American Values to become the number one movie in the country for like months over the summer. You don't usually see a biopic. Summers are used for action movies. Here's this biopic drama, comedy, action sort of hybrid sort of thing become the talk of the town from the president on now.
0: The movie was on last night and I had turned it on because anytime that movie's on, I have to turn it on to see if we're going to get to the scene when they're in Detroit. I will watch that scene every time. The lead up to it, everything. They just did such a good job. I believe it was F. Gary Gray that had directed the movie. Just did such a good job highlighting the tension and everything. Oh, it's so good. It was really well done. So that's my number two. How about yours? Number two, what you got? My number two is also a Beats by Dre one. It is the ambush marketing campaign that Beats did for the 2012 London Olympics. This is one of the more brilliant campaigns that I've seen in a while. What I really loved about it was the fact that the Olympics and the IOC is so tight on sponsorship because companies pay a ton of money for it. I believe Panasonic was one of the official partners and they paid 64 million pounds to be one of the key sponsors. And of course, everyone in the world is watching this, right? So what does Beats do? Beats says, no, we're not going to pay for one of those sponsorships. We're going to set up a little kiosk in London and we're just going to give out headphones to the athletes. And we're going to make sure that a few key athletes get them. So we're going to make sure that Michael Phelps gets them. We're going to make sure other people get them. And not only did it become the talk of any sponsor that was getting it, the fact that they had not necessarily skirted the rules because they didn't necessarily do anything wrong. They just went about it, you know, reading the lines and went about it their way. It got a bunch of attention for Beats. It got a bunch of earned media coverage from people just seeing their favorite athletes wearing Beats. And every media outlet covered and talked about how Beats did a great ambush marketing campaign. And obviously, it's one of these things now that it wouldn't necessarily have the same effect had it been done now, given the fact that Beats has just been everywhere with it. And We've already seen companies try to do stunts. It's kind of hard to have that same kind of shock value, but it was just so powerful. I mean, this is such a big event. And from an impact perspective, the sales at Apple stores afterward had grown over 100%. And I think a lot of this actually led to Beats being out of position to sell the product to Apple for, I believe it was $3.2 was the number. Of course, Apple ended up buying it more so for the software that led to Apple Music, but the branding helped push a lot of that forward. And I think the Olympics was a great thing to take Beats from great to even greater. It says a lot
1: about the cultural capital that Beats by Dre had been able to garner, not the best product, right. Relative to like Bose and other players in the space. Right. But those athletes want to rock Beats by Dre because of what Beats by Dre said about them, it was a receipt of coolness, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just perfect. Really well done. That should have been an honorable mention for me. That was that's really good. Cool. <laughs> All right. We got our final ones now. So this to me is the best hip hop marketing campaign ever done if for no other reason that it lasted a decade a decade long this is of course sprite obey your thirst what was done here unbelievable so at the time i think this is the early 90s the first iteration of it was like early 90s like 90 91 the aesthetic was like all white and they brought in like heavy d kid and play like very safe you are gonna do hip-hop at that time very very safe artists and they use the line sprite and you then they're like okay this doesn't really capture the hip-hop ethos at the time so now you've got like early 90s and the first spot that comes out is Pete Rock and CL Smooth and they're in the studio black and white and they're just rhyming right and it's almost like someone said it this way that like the sprite can't look like a blunt in the studio like it belonged there. Right? And it was like so perfect. And I remember being a kid watching this on like NBC at primetime, and I'm like, fam, like you never see these guys on television. And then you, the next spot is Grand Puba and a large professor. And it's like all these people that you only see on BET or for one hour on MTV during Yo MTV rap, seeing them on the primetime big screen. And it just embodied everything. That was in the ethos, the cultural characteristics, what it means to be hip-hop. Then they bring in sport with basketball, Grant Hill, Kobe Bryant, and it literally lasted a decade. And that language, obey your thirst, it had meaning in the lexicon of hip-hop. Unfortunately, Sprite was never really able to recapture that, even they tried to bring Drake into it decades later, and never been able to capture that magic again. But that was marketing at its finest, leveraging the nuances of hip hop culture and putting it as an entree to the broader populace for those who identify and those who didn't identify. It's like, what's this thing all about? It's really powerful. That was
0: a brilliant one. I mean, I think about how much emphasis and impact that brands and companies want to put towards their campaigns. And I think people a lot of times focus on what to do for the short term. But how do you have that thing that lasts, that then becomes something that becomes built upon later in time? So many companies try to get that. And I think that's where Sprite really succeeded with that. It was sharp. They did mixtapes for the NBA mixtapes. I mean, they were doing the dunk
1: contest in those early times. Like they just felt like they were a part of the culture and it moved Sprite from being the number three soda to number two overtaking Pepsi. That time it was Coke Sprite, then Pepsi, just unbelievable impact on the culture unbelievable impact on commerce, which is really where cultural consumption
0: is at its best. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about Sprite again and hip hop soon when we talk about Travis Scott, because of course that is the drink of choice in his Travis Scott meal, right? My number one shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that's read Trapital a lot, but I do think that the best marketing was the campaign to have no marketing at all for one of the biggest drops in recent memory. This was Beyonce's 2013 surprise album. This wasn't something that people in the music industry had done. If you are a major artist, if you are signed to a major label, if you are as big as someone as Beyonce was in that Mrs. Carter World Tour era, you want to make sure the world knows about your album. So it was impressive for the fact that they were willing to take this risk. And it's also impressive that No one really knew that this was happening until the drop. The fact that they were able to keep this under wraps. And I'm aware that 2013, the internet was even less connected than it was now. But it was still the internet. Leaks happened all the time. Like, Not that one person was like, rumors, Beyonce may be dropping a surprise album. The fact that it was then the most commercially successful album that she had had, In this year that I really think was a turning point for many artists because the streaming era really started to take off, but you were really starting to see that dearth of CDs. Like That 2011 to 2013 range was rough for a lot of artists because of that, but she had more success arguably than anyone. It had gotten widespread coverage everywhere and... Harvard Business School case studies written about this. Everyone was talking about the fact that she had done this. And in a lot of ways, that was one of the things that inspired me to want to create a publication that focused on talking about those types of things as well, In Trapital And I think back to it often when I think about the amount of artists now that do the surprise drops, and it's so commonplace, and it all stems from when she had done it.
1: So I used to run Digital Strategy for Beyonce years before that. This is in the I Am Sasha Fierce days. And you're right, for an artist the stature of Beyonce at a label like Sony Columbia, the run-up for this thing has to be meticulously calculated. And this is the album that's going to cover all the losses for the other albums that didn't do well from these other artists that you signed. This is the trump card, which can't even say anymore. That whole metaphor is gone. But this is the card that you're going to drop you don't roll the dice on that to like, let's just leak it. Let's just release it without anybody knowing. You don't typically do that. And for that to happen is phenomenal. And I like the way you said that it wasn't the connected web as we know it today, but it still was the internet. And the same way that it seemed to be disconnected relative to where we are today, that was the medium by which people found out about it. (laughs) Like So the same way that it wasn't at its zenith, it still was a unbelievably powerful vehicle for people to find out about the album, particularly because the people who told other people was her tribe, her network of people, the beehive, right? And the social web enabled that sort of network activation that normally wouldn't be able to be done before. So the coordination to make that happen, just unbelievable. I applaud Leanne Callahan, who was the general manager at Parkland at the time, that whole team, and even Beyonce, just being willing to take that risk. I think it was
0: brilliant. So what's your favorite campaign that you've worked on? I know we talked about a few of the ones, but as an ad exec, someone that has worked on several of these, you've seen things you like, you've seen things that you may not like. What's the favorite one that you've worked on yourself?
1: I just go back and forth in these three because often I'm like, well, Made in America is one of my favorites. But I really love the Brooklyn Nets. I really do, particularly because there's a lot of adversity and adversity at that time was totally justifiable. Like we were bringing a team, we're going to disrupt a very historic area in Brooklyn. You're bringing something from New Jersey to New York which typically will never, it never jives. Like, it's like, what? No, like those things are diametrically opposed. And the way we did it is instead of focusing on the value propositions, like a lot of marketers are trained to do, we decided to focus on the people. And what do we know about the people of Brooklyn? They are the most proud people ever, right? You know, that saying, is Brooklyn in a house? Where Brooklyn at? Like, that's a real, real thing. So we tapped into what it means to be a Brooklynite and borrowed a page from Edward Bernays' propaganda theory. And it's that you can unite people by declaring an enemy of the state. And the enemy of the state was obviously implicit Manhattan. So we launched the team without even knowing who the team was going to be. Just by leveraging the cultural characteristics that govern the network, i.e. what it means to be a Brooklynite. And we leverage hip-hop as a way to do it. I mean, the language we use, Hello Brooklyn, sourced from the Beastie Boys, And then brought into relevance with Jay-Z's Hello Brooklyn. And that became the language that Brooklynites use as opposed to where Brooklyn at, very biggie, is Brooklyn in the house, to Hello Brooklyn. To have that kind of impact, again, that kind of impact on culture, like this is where marketing is at its best, where we're not creating ads, we're not creating commercials, not creating campaigns, but we're creating cultural products that impact people's beliefs, how they talk, how they imbue things with meaning
0: and how their norms are constructed. And you just made me think of something else now. Do you think that the success of that campaign and the continued impact it's had now thinking a little bit about how Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving had said, no one wants to go sign for the New York Knicks, like they're not cool. Do you think that the lack of success and the lack of cultural impact that the New York Knicks have had helped the Brooklyn Nets in their positioning of their campaign.
1: Absolutely. I mean, so it was interesting. The brief we got from Brett Yarmark, who was the CEO of the Brooklyn Nets, he says, I want the Brooklyn Nets to be to Brooklyn, what... The Knicks are to Manhattan and the Knicks are Showtime, they're Flash, right? They're like New York Flash, not like Lakers Flash, but they're like, they're bright lights, big city, like there are Manhattan, but the Brooklyn Nets are a little grittier, right? They're a little more, mm, they're a little more Brooklyn, right? And unfortunately, the ethos of what it means to be a New Yorker still is grit. There's still grit of what it means to be New Yorker, whether you're in Brooklyn or Manhattan. And the Knicks, despite the fact that they lose, though they are the most valuable NBA franchise, they lose over and over and over again. They don't have any cultural gravitas
0: when it comes to what is seen to be culturally relevant today. I think that's going to continue for some time. We'll see, though. I know that the New York Knicks have their whole campaign. I know that Stout and a bunch of other people. They have Worldwide West on the staff as well. So we'll see. Let's talk about Travis Scott quickly, and then let's open it up to questions. What was your take on Travis Scott's partnership and collab with McDonald's? So I think what
1: McDonald's did was unbelievably smart and forward-looking so if you remember they did the super bowl spot where they showed all these famous people their order right whether you're kim kanye to like fictitious people like this is what they order so they're basically saying people like you eat mcdonald's right people you think too snooty for mcdonald's this is actually what they order Right. So like bringing it down to to a human level, which was a wise thing to do, making it more legitimized. Right. This is acceptable. But then to take someone like Travis Scott, who seems to be on the fringe. We think about the broader cultural zeitgeist, but very much a driver in hip hop culture, which we know is the tip of the spear when it comes to what will ultimately be popular to take someone like him to say, hey, not only do regular people and celebrities eat McDonald's, but this guy who, you know, is like the quintessential cool does as well. And here's his order. And now you can have it. Now, if I'm McDonald's, I'm running that gameplay from here on out. Every quarter is going to be now the whoever's you know, like, that's the way to go. And it feels like I see that and actually believe that that's what Travis Scott eats. When he goes to McDonald's, I actually believe that he probably eats at McDonald's regularly
0: too. I do too. Like there was a bit of authenticity that you could see. I'm like, yes, one all brands should be believable when they're doing partnerships. But like I saw that, I was like, yeah. I think also was the simplicity of just marketing what was already there. I think that in recent years, you know, the Popeye's chicken sandwich has gotten a bunch of acclaim, but that was semi-understandable because it was a new item, right? A new item that wasn't on the menu before and people went crazy for it. Anyone could have went to McDonald's and gotten a quarter pounder with bacon and dipped their fries in barbecue sauce. Anyone could do that, but people already do that. But like you have this brand, you have this impact on it, which I think was powerful. One thing that I saw someone bring up yesterday that I didn't necessarily think about, but this could be a factor as well. So the price of the Travis Scott meal is $6 and I've been to McDonald's recently, but I think that's much cheaper than a lot of the other value meals that are on the menu. So was there a pricing strategy that was focused here to say, we want the Travis Scott meal to be the most affordable option than, let's say, a traditional quarter pounder with cheese value meal or something like that? I would need to look into it to get a bit more context to be able to verify. But I did see someone mention that, and I've been thinking about that since.
1: So McDonald's typically does price promotions when they do some feature on a product. I worked at McDonald's for like six years, as one of my clients. So whenever they do any kind of product highlight, even if it's a product that already exists, they usually do some type of price promotion with it. So I wouldn't be surprised if that'd be the case. And if you have been to McDonald's, like you say, like, yo, it's not cheap. The whole like, I can get like a full meal for $3. No, sir. No, you cannot. Like The dollar menu is still there, but the combos are still like five, six, and in some cases, you know, more than that. What I thought was interesting is that A, it was a round number, $6, which makes it very easy to communicate. $6 meal as opposed to, no, it's $5.99 or $549 or whatever the case may be. So I thought that, that was really wise. But again, to authenticity, like it feels like that is that dude's meal. Like I believe that. Like, there's this believability to it. Unlike when LeBron James was the endorser for Kia, you're like, son, you are not driving. <laughs> Come on, LeBron. Like, I am not buying that at all. I believe when Travis Scott is on the road, like, that is what he gets. And it's just really well done. And it wasn't, like, super over-branded or, like, it didn't feel nasty. It just felt like almost a statement of fact. It felt like the campaign for, like, a declaration more than like, a, here's this fancy-dancy thing we're doing. Here's a new product, right? The sizzling Travis Scott. You know, we haven't called it. I've called the Cactus Jack. Like, just really smart,
0: really well done. Let's open it up to questions. So if you have a question, please send it to us through the chat. I actually just got one. I'll read it now. But feel free to send a few and we'll answer them until we end. This question is... Artists seemingly promoting themselves and their products on social media, for example, Takashi 69 does that significantly change the equation for how companies traditionally partner with artists and their brands? I don't think so, especially now.
1: I think that when brands think about engaging artists, they are thinking about the totality of the artists. Like I've seen the contracts. They definitely want X amount of posts. These things are a part of the inventory we think about. What benefits they'll get from the deal. It's not just your likeness and like you'll hold the product, but it's going to be a part of your normal sort of publishing. And in some cases, that's the best outlet. There's not a lot of new television being shot right now. So that's not even an option. In a lot of cases, the Travis Scott is a great example. Like, there's no ad for that. There's no like television spot to promote that. They started with like some tweets and some Instagram posts, right? So This is a part of the tapestry of media that marketers want to take advantage of to get their messages to the right people in the right contextual
0: matter. Yeah, I think if anything, it could be done to amplify, not necessarily something to take away if there is a way to have everything integrated in a way that makes sense. And I think the power of social media offers that. Of course, I think I understand where the question is coming from in terms of someone like Takashi Six Nine. It's his fans, but he still has the record for the most amount of people that tuned in for an Instagram live stream. We may want to think it's one of the versus battles or Brandy versus Monica, which did well, but no, it's Takashi Six Nine's first one when he came out of prison a couple months ago. So I do get that, but I think if anything, it can amplify, not replace. Next question here what's our take on how the hip-hop museum in the bronx will work with brands and i guess more broadly let's just extend that a bit how museums in general can work with brands i could take that first because i last year i went to the trap museum in atlanta that ti had put on it was cool it was cool so the way they set it up i guess Museum's a strong word. It was almost a bit more of like an interactive activation, if you will, because it wasn't necessarily like you were just standing around. Like you could engage with what's happening. You could go in separate listening rooms. And a lot of it was Instagrammable, which I know is definitely a theme with modern museums. But I do think that there is an opportunity for brands to be able to have partnerships in areas like that. Because I'm seeing something like that. I see hundreds of people lined up outside on a weekend day to come in. And a lot of them do want to take their picture in front of that 2 car that he had, that pink one that was on the cover of, what's the name of that album? Like Pretty Girls Like Trap Music. That's the name of the album. So, how could a brand have their version of that? You don't just want to like put like a Burger King logo on something and make it look tacky. But what are the iconic things that brands have been involved with? I would need to think of some, but I think there's an opportunity there.
1: I mean, this is actually ties into how we started the dialogue. We named 10 unique marketing campaigns that had an impact on hip hop culture because they were informed by hip hop culture. I mean, hip hop is a very consumption positive culture of consumption, like a collective of people, right? The brands that we adorn ourselves with say something about how we see the world and our status within society. Like what's the biggie line? Things have changed. Went from being a common thief to live like luxury, like Robin Leach, right? Mm-hmm. Consumption is a part of what we do. I spent 400 bucks on this just to be like, you ain't up on this. This is a part of the culture. So there's so many organic and authentic ways that brands could be a part of a curation of hip-hop culture by way of a museum that don't feel icky, but it feels more like they belong here, like Sprite
0: in the studio. This is another one I think will be a good one for you to take. I have thoughts on it, but I think you'll be a better one to answer it. And I'm sorry, I should have said the people that have asked the questions, my fault. I'll do that now. This is from Philip Prokovic. He says, why do you think brands are always one step behind when it comes to working with hip-hop culture? Because they don't understand the culture.
1: This is the thing. Culture is one of those things that we talk about often, but we seldom truly understand. And the thing about culture is that culture is unbelievably nuanced. They are the system of beliefs, norms, rituals, and artifacts that govern how people behave. And the way to understand the culture is to get really, 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 really really close to the culture. A lot of the people who make decisions for brands, even on the agency side, as well as the brand marketers, they don't understand the culture. They don't understand the nuances, the things that you'll see and say, ugh, what are you doing? And see something else and be like, yo, that was done so perfectly well. Not to throw shade, but I think about the Cheerios and Nelly ad where the money is like <laughs> Must be the honey. Must be the honey. Like Nelly just got a check. Like that's basically what that was. It felt so divorced from culture, even though you had an artist that was seemingly relevant at the time, a song that was very, very popular in the the pop culture and culture in general, but yet all the nuances were wrong. Why? Because they don't understand it. And this is what happens all the time. They're a step
0: behind because they're not a step in. Well said. Someone else had asked a similar question to that. They want to know what's the most atrocious marketing campaign that missed the mark. You didn't say that that was atrocious, but Nelly must be the honey was definitely one of the ones that had a lot left desired. It was horrible. At the end of it, it was like, must be
1: the honey. I was like, what? No, he auto-tuned his voice. B got swag.
0: It's like, what is going on here? It's almost like a parody of itself. It was so bad. I definitely was someone that was, you know, team Nelly, especially when he first came out, but I do feel like that is a theme for his career in general. I feel like after that suit, sweat, double album, things just went to a full commercial. I don't even care about trying to make the music that you all used to love anymore.
1: You know, it's so interesting though, considering how close brands are with hip hop and like to have an endorsement actually means that you're like really crushing it. That like, Hammer was one of the first hip-hop artists to pair with the brand, with Pepsi, right? And he was shunned for it. It was like, what are you doing? Uh, because it didn't feel like hip-hop. Hammer had like a big stage show, like his stage show was like Michael Jackson, right? Like 50 people on stage with him, fireworks, pyrotechnics. And in the 90s, that wasn't hip-hop. But then you fast forward again, three, four years later, and the Sprite connection with hip-hop just felt real. It's the nuances that make all the difference.
0: Herbert Mota, Colin from Brazil, says, are you guys familiar with hip-hop culture outside of America? Do you think that another country could achieve a good business and brand partnerships in the same type of way? Yes. So I actually studied, like
1: my field of study is I study Cultures of consumption and how things spread. So, I study social contagion within these cultures of consumption. And my doctoral research is on hip hop culture, how brands and branded products spread within these collectives. And I look at them not here just in the States, but also in different countries. And the thing about hip hop is hip hop, it is the language for the marginalized, which is why you see hip hop spread across the globe the way it does. Now, the only difference is that though the ethos is the same right we believe in the same sort of cultural drivers they're contextualized in different ways based on the countries that they're in so brazil it probably won't work the exact same way that it worked here in the states right but if you can take what matters to hip-hop in that location and then take the brands that are aligned to it then you can find ways to make them coexist because that's a part of Hip-hop, right? I came from nothing to something. I'm stunting on you. And the way we show that we stunting on you are
0: the products and brands that we doing ourselves with. Agreed. I think that what we've seen across different countries is that hip-hop really has become the language that a lot of people use to speak out and bring a voice that they may not have to other issues. I look at what certain hip-hop artists have said. They've been censored for things they've said in the Middle East. They've been censored for things they've said artists in Asia. And this is something that U.S. artists several of them still deal with this, but was much more prevalent in the NWA public enemy days. So when you have that, you can see that evolution happening
1: for sure. I got to credit, and you guys had Stout on here earlier in the season, like I got to credit Stout. So I worked with Stout for four years and he was very critical and impactful in me kind of seeing the world of branding and hip hop culture in a way that a, can be communicated to clients so that they can understand it, but also to bring it to the masses as well. So saw someone posted about Tang of America. I helped
0: launch that book with him. It's sort of the Bible of kind of how these things work. Well said. Marcus, before we let you go, thank you. This was a pleasure. Where can the audience find you and how can they follow more of what you're doing? So you can find me at Mark to the C
1: at Mark to the Sea on Facebook, Insta, LinkedIn, or you can go to marktothec.com, M-A-R-C-T-O-T-H-E-C.com and check me out there. Thanks so much for having me, brother. This was so long overdue and I feel like we're just getting started. I feel like we have so much more to talk
0: about. We'll get something soon. This will not be the last. Indeed. Thank you, brother. And thanks to everyone for joining. Much appreciated. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcast, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-N-T i-t-a-l.co sign up for the weekly newsletter get all the content there and also shoot me a text that's also a great way to stay in touch with travel content you can text me dan runcy at 415-234-3074 thanks again see you next week